Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives, where you can listen to every episode we've ever done, going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is January 28th, 2016. I want to thank listeners Sally Fama Cochran and Elizabeth Fama for recommending today's guest. He is Adam Seafew of the University of Chicago Medical School. He's won many awards for his teaching in the medical school. He's author of a book on clinical diagnosis. And today we're talking about his new book, co-authored with Vinay Prasad, Ending Medical Reversal, Improving Outcomes, Saving Lives. Adam, welcome to Econ Talk. Thank you very much. I want to say first, this is a spectacular book that will resonate deeply with Econ Talk listeners who are interested in health, in the question of what is reliable evidence, how do we know what we know. And ultimately, I think we're going to get at the end of this conversation to issues related to economics and the parallels between uh, health and uh, evidence in health and economics, which we have talked about before. So I just want to start by encouraging people to check the book out. Uh, and it's, it's also delightfully written. I want to start with what is medical reversal, which is the subject of your book. Uh, what does that term mean and uh, how yeah, did you coin it? So medical reversal, so we, we actually had a lot of trouble coming up with what to call this. Um, we think about, I like to start with thinking about how um, medicine is supposed to evolve. Um, which I think of as replacement. We have a good therapy, a pill, a surgery, a device, whatever. Um, we're happy with that. And then some good evidence comes out to tell us that something's better and that something better replaces what we used to do and we're sort of happy about that. Um, and that's kind of how we expect medicine to improve bit by bit over time. Reversal is when a new therapy comes along that replaces the old therapy but usually that new therapy is not based on, you know, really foolproof evidence. Um, but we only find that out after the new therapy has been adopted, used by hundreds, thousands, maybe millions of patients. Um, and then we discover when more robust data comes out that, huh, you know, this new therapy is not as good as the old therapy. Maybe it's worse than the old therapy. Maybe it's worse than not doing anything at all. And that's where we consider medical reversal, where we've kind of flip-flopped on what we've recommended. And the first question, of course, is how is this a big problem or a small problem? We'd assume, given how phenomenal medical care is in, in its advances in technology and pharmaceuticals, that I mean, this must happen what, every once in a while, of course. But you seem to suggest it's a little more of a problem than one might think. Yeah. I, to be completely honest, you know, we don't know how much this happens. Um, Vinay Prasad, my co-author, and I um, began thinking about this just when in our own clinical practice, we realized that some things we'd recommended a couple of years before, we not only no longer recommend, but we were sort of apologizing to our patients that we'd recommended it in the first place. And so we sought to figure out, boy, is this just a rare occurrence that when it happens, it really, you know, sticks in your head and certainly sticks in my patient's head? Or is this something that's more frequent? Um, a lot of people have looked into this and in sort of various different interesting ways, which I can talk about. 
our approach was actually just to look at one journal, really important journal, the New England Journal of Medicine, and we looked at all the articles published over um, a 10-year span. Um, we, we got a lot of people to help us out with that since it was a pretty big job. Um, and over those 10 years, we identified 146 um, articles about um, which concerned about a hundred different therapies, um, which were clearly therapies that had been adopted, used widely, lots of money spent on them that turned out to absolutely be the wrong thing. Um, our estimates, sort of taking other people's research with our research, is that maybe as much as 35, 40% of what we do could be wrong. It's a really big number. Um, and it's a really of, big number. One of the effects of your book is... And my listeners know how skeptical I am about lots of things. And one of the things I'm skeptical about <laughs> is medical treatment and various new yeah. and old treatments. Yeah, I'm always wondering, does this really work? Uh, and for, incredibly, just even given how skeptical I am, this book actually made me even more skeptical, uh, which is, oh, which God, is quite an achievement. <laughs> yeah. um, things I'm doing now, well, of course, this is a good idea. Um, uh, I'm starting to think, well, I wonder if there's any evidence for this. And even if there is some evidence is a good evidence. Let's start with some uh, examples, some prominent examples. And what's interesting about the book uh, is the range of things that are not effective. It's not just, well, that pill didn't do what it's supposed to do. Uh, talk about some of the, pick three or four that, that come to mind uh, that didn't work and talk about uh, wh what happened, why they, they were reversed, the findings. Sure. Well, maybe I'll start with, I think, where I started on this and probably the thing that's most familiar to listeners um, is estrogen replacement therapy. Uh, estrogen replacement therapy was really widely recommended for women um, after menopause and prescribed all throughout the late 80s, 90s, and even into the 2000s. Um, and this was based on observational data predominantly from the nurses' health study that showed us that women who used estrogen replacement therapy did better, had fewer cardiovascular events, heart attacks, strokes, things like that, than women who didn't use estrogen replacement therapy. Um, this idea was made even more attractive because there was there was a good sort of biophysical, biochemical rationale of why we should use um, estrogen replacement therapy. Um, we know that women's, women develop coronary artery disease about 10 years later than men. We attribute that to the effect of estrogen. Um, and so most doctors do, did this. I certainly recommended it to my patients. And then when a really good sort of experimental randomized control trial came out, we figured out that, huh, you know, estrogen replacement therapy really doesn't help reduce the risk of cardiovascular events. And for the first couple of years you may you use it, it may actually increase the um, the rate of events. So that for me was, was the first time I began thinking about this. Um, and I think I'll speak a little bit for my co-author, Dr. Prasad. Um, I think the thing that got him the most and certainly was, was shocking to me was the story of uh, using stents for stable coronary artery disease. Um, now, stents are these little expandable metal tubes, which are like magic. Um, they can be inserted with a catheter into pretty much at this point any artery in the body, but speaking here about inserting them into coronary arteries and therefore can effectively open up blockages of the coronary arteries. 
Um, and we know for an absolute fact that those stents are life-saving in people who've had heart attacks, people who have what we call unstable angina, where they're sort of on the verge of having a heart attack. Um, but what happened in the late 2000s is we started using these stents for people who had stable angina, people who were fine, but when they exercised, they would get chest pain because they had mild to moderate blockages in their heart, in their coronary arteries. Um, turned out that a ton of money was spent on this. By 2009, 80% of the Medicare dollars that were spent on coronary stents were spent on this indication, using them for stable coronary disease. And then this very famous trial, the COURAGE trial, came out in 2009, which showed that if you're looking at things like preventing heart attacks, preventing deaths, stents were no better than just the medical therapy we were using at the time. Um, so I think those stick out in my mind as, as some of the most striking examples. And you have a mix of things that were just ineffective, had no impact, and of others that were perhaps ineffective. But in the case of the stent, you really don't want to put a stent in if you don't, if it's not effective. It's the treatment itself right. often comes with risk, risks of infection, yeah. uh, side effects from a, from a pill, et cetera, correct? It's absolutely true. And, and so, you know, some of the things that we state in the book, um, you know, they, they probably didn't harm anybody. And the harm, you know, probably was the cost of the procedure. You know, in American medicine, nothing is cheap. Um, there may be an opportunity cost for some of these interventions where the person got something that we thought was helping but wasn't. And maybe at the same time, they could have been getting something which was actually effective. Um, and then certainly another harm is, you know, this really does affect people's faith in medicine. You know, whether you're a skeptic to begin with or not, you know, once you've spent a year on a medication, which your doctor then tells you you should come off because it's not doing anything, you're a little bit more, you know, slow on the uptake for future recommendations, I think. Just for a baseline, you talked about observational studies as being the original uh, motivator for the uh, estrogen replacement therapy. Uh, and this is a fantastic parallel in economics. Um, mm. So talk about what is the difference, because we're going to, I hope, talk about this more all throughout the conversation. What's an observational study on the one hand versus a randomized control trial or an RCT sure. on the other? And why sure. why is one better than the other? Yeah, great. So an observational study um, is really a natural experiment. And I think it's in economics, probably, you know, what you have to struggle with all the time. Um, so that in medicine is when already something has differentiated two populations, two groups of people. Um, it may be that one group has decided to take a medication while the other one hasn't. It may be that one group has been exposed to something, say, you know, living in a poor neighborhood versus another group which has not been exposed to that. Or it may be that a doctor has made a decision to do an intervention on one group and decided not to do that intervention in the other group. And then an observational study will report the difference in outcomes for those two groups. You know, did the people who take the pill do better than the people who didn't take the pill? And it should what's be pretty that? obvious that, well, yeah, so what's wrong with that is that it's not just the pill that's different between those two groups of patients. Something motivated those people who took the pill to use it or their doctors to prescribe it and something motivated the other people not to take the pill or not to prescribe it. And so 
usually in observational studies, when you look at the groups, the groups are very different. To go back to the estrogen replacement example, boy, when we look at that, women who took estrogen were younger, thinner, um, had actually better cholesterol levels. I think they actually drank a little bit more than the women who didn't. So it was a very different population. And so it was probably not the estrogen replacement therapy which was benefiting them, but everything else about them that made them have better outcomes. So I'm going to play. What I'm going to call confounding. Yeah, I'm going to I'm going to play the uh, the believer for a minute, which is not okay. challenging for me because this is one of my big skepticisms in in economics. Okay, so there's some confounding factors. You just ran off four or five of them. Control for those. That's what we have statistics for. That's what multivariate regression and other techniques do to to uh, control for those confounding factors. Then then we can isolate the effect of the estrogen replacement. Uh, so you're absolutely right, and and you know these these studies have a place, right? Um, the problem is that we never know if we're completely adjusting for those confounding factors. And you know the people who did the nurses' health study, man, you know they were smart. They were Harvard School of Public Health kind of people. Um, and they controlled for, you know, without the paper in front of me, I would say a dozen, probably more things. Um, but these groups were so different that they weren't able to control for all the confounders. There was a wonderful study, um, and this is, you know, using all medicine examples um, from a couple of years back, where some really brilliant um, researchers took um, studies of a single intervention that were studied both in observational trials and in randomized controlled trials, which are really experiments, which get the whole confounding problem um, out of the picture. And it turned out that those studies agreed most of the time, I think about 80% is what I recall, um, which is good. But it's not perfect, and you don't know when those observational studies are steering you in the right direction and when they're steering you in the wrong direction. And I guess the I want to just hone in on this issue of you call a mechanism or the underlying science, which of course we have an imperfect knowledge of also in both medicine and in economics. We have a pretty good idea, given what you mentioned in the data about differences between male and female heart attack rates, that estrogen mm -hmm. in women probably protects them somewhat. Perhaps we don't know right. for sure because right. we don't really know that how the heart exactly is affected by it. But it's presumed that that's the case. So then when you give people estrogen, that should reduce the probability of a heart attack. The problem was, of course, is that giving people estrogen may not be the same as producing estrogen. That That's one problem. The other problem is you don't really understand the mechanism. But in a lot of these cases, it seems like the mechanism itself is the thing we don't really understand. And I, my question is, how do we ever get – do we ever get at that underlying uh, – mechanism. If we did, we'd have a much better way of finding things to help. Oh, boy, that's so true. And I think if there's one thing I took away from the work that went into this book, it was the humility that was sort of forced upon me when I saw how many times we are absolutely sure that something will work because it should work. We understand the mechanism. We think we understand the biology. And boy, I mean, we know we know a ton about how the human body works. Um, and then when everything lines up to say this intervention should work, and that's part of why it's been adopted, and then real empirical data shows that it doesn't work, you know, it's 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 shocking. Um, and I think the fact is, God, the human body is just so complicated, and there are so many different things 
um, that impact on how a medication or a procedure works or doesn't work. That I don't know. I mean, I hope we'll know it eventually, but right now we don't, and we need to go with, I guess, you know, empiricism more than the the, the biochemical rationale that underlies some of these decisions. You talk about surrogate endpoints, and that's one of the challenges that this relates to. Explain what those are and why that's that's a challenge. Sure. Um, so, you know, I think of the um, of the dichotomy as, as surrogate endpoints and clinical endpoints. And clinical endpoints are the things that you care about. You know, it's how do I feel? Um, am I going to live longer? Um, am I going to avoid having a stroke? Like really, really key things. Um, surrogate endpoints are stand-ins for those. So it might be how high is your blood pressure? How high is your cholesterol level? Um, how high is your average sugar? Things that you know you would have absolutely no idea um, about those numbers or those values unless you see a doctor. They don't bother you at all. Um, and so when you come up with a new therapy, you really want it to improve a clinical endpoint. You know, you want this new pill um, to decrease the number of heart attacks people have. But boy, to show that, you know, you need a bunch of people, you need to follow them for a long time, and that's expensive. Um, so it's a lot easier to pick a surrogate marker, a stand-in like blood pressure and say, well, you know, we've got this new pill and it lowers blood pressure. And that we know that people who are at higher, who have higher blood pressure at higher risk for heart attacks. So it translates that lowering blood pressure should lower heart attacks. And we'll accept this therapy because we know it affects the surrogate marker in a good way. So you mentioned one uh, blood pressure medicine that in clinical trials did not uh, have any uh, clinical endpoint uh, effect. It did affect, of course, the surrogate endpoint. It did lower blood pressure, but it didn't affect sure. strokes, heart attack, et cetera. Is that true of all blood pressure medicine? Um, so that's that's not true of all blood pressure medications. I mean, most of the blood pressure medications we use, um, we do actually have hard endpoints on, and we've shown that they've decreased um, things like heart attack strokes, even some of them overall mortality. But that's not true for all of them. The one that we discuss in the book is is atenolol, which was marketed as tenormin for a long time. Um, and I'm, I'm strictly attached to that because back in medical school, we had to, we had to write this personal pharmacopoeia, which was, you know, 20 of our drugs we were most interested in and write all about them. And atenolol was the first drug in my personal pharmacopoeia. Um, Hard to let it go. And it turned, out, it? <laughs> <laughs> and it, it turned out that atenolol does do a really wonderful job at lowering blood pressure, as good as most of the other blood pressure medications we use today. Um, but when you brought together all the studies in which it was compared to placebo, it turns out that doesn't improve mortality, doesn't improve the risk of heart attacks. Um, it may slightly, slightly decrease the risk of strokes, um, but there are so many other medications which control the blood pressure just as well, but actually control all of those real clinical endpoints. But to get back to this mechanism issue, we don't understand why it is that some medications that lower blood pressure seem to actually affect the things we care about while this one did not. Absolutely true. Absolutely true. Um, you know, I think there are certainly people who know a lot more than me um, about that, but you know, nobody in the end, nobody can really predict. You know, will this have the the outcomes that we hope it does and expect it does? So let's go back to randomized control trials. Uh, we we talked about the challenge of uh, the confounding factors in an observational study, a so-called natural experiment, a so-called statistical analysis of of observable behavior and outcomes. 
Why is a, a randomized controlled trial better? What's better about it? Yeah. So a randomized control trial is really an experiment. Um, and so you take a group of people who you, you know, ask, um, ask nicely, um, to enroll in your study. Um, you make sure the study is an ethical study approved by your institutional review board to say that, um, uh, there is equipoise. We don't know which is better. We don't know if the treatment um, is better than what we're presently doing. And then you randomize them and half the group gets the treatment, half the group gets the placebo. And so those groups are exactly the same on average in all the risk factors that you know of, but also all the risk factors that you don't know of, but we might know of in 10 years. Um, and so in a really well done randomized controlled trial, we know at the end that whatever difference there is in the group once the trial has ended is due to your intervention, whether it be a surgery or a pill or a device implant. Well, you hope you know because the, the, there are still issues about, as you say, you don't know everything to control for. It could be by chance that the people in, one, in the placebo group are different in ways that you don't observe. But the idea, of course, is the larger the sample, the more you hope you've dealt with that problem because the law of large numbers, correct? That is true. That is true. And I can tell by the way you talk, you are a true skeptic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But well, what's fascinating is you actually came up, there, there are a lot of issues that come up in, in randomized controlled trials and economics that are problematic, mainly because there's a big difference between physiology and the setting that a, an experiment takes place in in economics. It's going to be right. harder to generalize. There are issues, of course, in, in medical issues by population and geography, et cetera. But but you did bring up a couple of really interesting challenges of, of randomized controlled trials that I had not thought of, one positive, one negative. The, I, I loved your point. A lot of people say, well, um, it's unethical to give people a placebo because they're, they've got this condition and you're not helping them. So uh, for, first, talk about – I think it's uh, – if I got this correct uh, – vertebroplasty. Talk about how – yeah. What the degree to which they tried to keep make the placebo as close as possible to the treatment, uh, which I love sure. that, and then talk about why it's actually kind of ethical. It is ethical. It's not. As, it's not what you think. Yeah, uh, um, vertebroplasty is a wonderful example. So, um, to take a step back of what vertebroplasty is, um, so people with osteoporosis with thinning of the bones. Um, most commonly postmenopausal women who we seem to be picking on in today's conversation for some reason, um, um, will develop osteoporosis and then may develop what's called a spinal compression fracture. And if you picture the vertebrae in your back, a compression fracture is just when all of a sudden that collapses. Um, very common, the estimates are that there are 700,000 compression fractures in the United States every year. And about 280,000 of those are clinically important, meaning that people, you know, develop back pain, go to the doctor with it. Um, for years, our only real treatment for, for um, compression fractures was pain medication and time. Um, and people do get better from these eventually. Um, and then in the 80s, um, some radiologists came up with this kind of neat idea that, well, what if we take someone who has a compression fracture and we inject medical cement into that, into that collapsed vertebrae? And so the vertebrae sort of puffs up, gets stabilized, the nerves that are coming around that area get a little bit more room to breathe, and people should get better. Um, and this was an approved therapy based on some not perfect trials, um, which showed that people who got this procedure felt better than people who didn't get this procedure. 
The real test, though, um, was to design a study that had a placebo group as close to the intervention group as possible other than the vertebroplasty. And it was an amazing study done by some very brave researchers um, where patients were randomized either to have vertebroplasty or to get sham vertebroplasty. And the sham was that they took people to the procedure room they prepped their back like they were going to do vertebroplasty. They actually opened the medical cement so the patient could smell the medical cement. That's my favorite. Um, and then they just and then they just injected saline um, into their back. And it turned out that over the first month after um, after the procedure, all the endpoints were exactly the same between the sham group and the um, and the intervention group. No difference in pain, no difference in quality of life, no difference in activity scores, nothing. So that's fascinating, but I, I I don't want to hear people to hear about the opening of the cement because that's my favorite thing. But the the other point is that of course sometimes the procedure harms you. So the placebo was great for the people who didn't who got that luck of the draw. It's absolutely true, and and the proceed the placebo group, you know, in a way is an insurance policy. And people argue that, ah, oh, boy, is it ethical to do this sham procedure on people, you know, to um, to intervene on them in some way that has no chance of helping them. Um, but in fact, in the vertebroplasty case, you know, those people saved, I don't know, thousands, maybe millions of people in the future from getting a procedure, which is not helpful. And as you point out, though, sometimes it's actually harmful and it's it's a blessing right. to get the placebo. Uh, you I have a lot of interesting things to say about placebo effects. Uh, you know, some that's for another time. Uh, yeah. The other, uh, before I get to the other part about uh, RCTs, I want to ask you a, a more pointed question about reversal, which this is a good example of. I suspect there are people listening right now who are either patients or doctors who are either in line to receive this vertebroplasty or actually do one because one of the depressing aspects of this book is that a lot of these reverse procedures continue so yes, that what, is true so i don't know if that one's totally off everyone knows that's wrong nobody does it anymore but there are plenty of things that you talk about in the book that continue um i just an example as you you suggest you say in the book that uh rapid response teams uh don't work don't show any effect the idea of creating a a, a a mobile group of, of people inside a hospital to respond to crises and emergencies don't seem to have any impact. I mentioned that to a doctor friend of mine who says, what, they don't? <laughs> uh, so either he missed the study or he doesn't agree with it. Or So right. surely some of these so-called reversals, people say, that's not a reversal. That's one study right. that found it didn't work. I, look, I it's helped my patients. I know it. Right, right. So I'll say in our defense, we were very careful um, in what we labeled reversals. And um, we only labeled something a reversal if the study that overturned the practice was clearly a better study than what had supported the practice in the past. Because you're absolutely right. I mean, are there things which clearly work, but then one study says they don't work? And yes, and we know from our statistics that that's going to happen. Um, but so when we when we said something was a reversal, it's that the studies which had actually recommended this procedure or this intervention in the past um, were less robust than the ones which had overturned it. Rapid response teams are, I think, a great example. Um, 
And I think right now we're not really sure um, if they're beneficial or not, but they have been adopted far and wide. Um, the, the data that says they work are generally um, single center studies. So one hospital shows that their rapid response teams work. Rapid response teams also, boy, they make everybody feel better because there are more people around to come running and helping. And the idea that this would be beneficial Wow, makes total sense. How you know, persons per, persons having a problem, you know, anybody can call the rapid response team. Um, the fact is, though, that for a rapid response team to really clearly be shown to work, it needs to be shown to help patients. Um, and you need to figure out what endpoint that is. Do you want your rapid response teams to save lives? Do you want your rapid response teams to get people out of the hospital faster? Or is your endpoint just that you want rapid response teams to send more people to the intensive care unit? Um, and to this point, we haven't seen that rapid response teams save lives. What are some of the psychological and monetary incentives that make it hard for doctors to admit uh, that, that there is such a phenomenon for a therapy or practice they're involved in? Yeah. Yeah. This is, this is always like the hardest thing for me to talk about being, you know, a... Um, 20 some odd years into my practice and being fully acculturated into medicine. Um, I'd like to think, and I, I really do believe that for the most part, um, when doctors are, you know, shocked by reversals, maybe when actually they, uh, you know, argue against a practice that they've recommended being reversed, it's because they truly believe it works. Um, They've not only invested a lot of time and energy into the practice, um, they've seen people who get, you know, the intervention get better. Um, and so they think it's the right thing to do for their patients. Um, there is a part of it, though, that you, you can't deny that, boy, if, if you've made a lot of money over the years during doing, you know, a procedure on people's knees, um, which you believe it works, but it's also you know, helping you, you send your kids to college. Um, when you find out that that doesn't work, you're, you're probably a little bit more apt to um, argue with it. Yeah, I don't have any problem um, giving that, um, making that argument. So, um, but it's a, a very common problem in economics as well. I, I like to argue that uh, about half of the macroeconomists uh, in America think they're in the top 5% of candidates to uh, head the Federal Reserve and that that affects their willingness to criticize the Federal Reserve, even if they don't, aren't aware of that, that subtle bias, um, but it's there. The other issue about randomized control trials I found uh, so interesting is that in the medical area, sometimes an, an RCT will be stopped prematurely because the effect seems so dramatic. It would be cruel then to keep people on the placebo or on the treatment. And uh, how does that affect one's, uh, the accuracy of the trials? Yeah, um, this is uh, um, another really nice piece of research by another group um, that, well, I'll, I'll step back a little bit. I mean, clearly when, when a randomized controlled study is designed, um, we feel that it's, it's basically an ethical necessity that if one treatment is coming out to be clearly superior than the other treatment, that that trial needs to be stopped. Um, because if our new intervention is working really well, and we know it, boy, it's unethical to keep giving people the placebo, right? Um, the issue is, is that, you know, if you're doing a bunch of studies, your studies are always going to come up with, with um, somewhat different outcomes um, just through random chance. And 
So what we found um, looking at multiple studies over time is that studies that are stopped early tend to overestimate the benefit of a treatment, um, which when you hear it, you say, yeah, you know, thinking about that, that makes sense. Um, it's surprising to me because I have to say my reaction is, you know, when I'm listening to the radio in the morning and I hear about a new try, a new therapy and it's being released because this trial was stopped early because it was shown to be effective. I'm sort of more convinced by that. I'm like, wow, this must be really good if they had to stop the trial. But it turns out we probably should not look at it that way. And we should say, hmm, well, you know, <laughs> this may be one trial that was positive, but maybe there are other trials which are, which will come out, which will be negative, And maybe this doesn't in fact work. One of the problems you talk about, of course, is that even when we believe, and I think you're right, that randomized control trials are better than observational studies, they're very expensive. Yes. How do you deal with that reality? We want to make medicine better. How do we deal with the fact that the the tool that we have to bring scientific technique to medicine, a true experiment, is um, is really a problem? Right. I, I think not only are they expensive, but you know you really need some very generous people to volunteer to be in the randomized control trial. I mean, it may not be cheaper for the individual, but it's a whole lot easier to just take the pill that your doctor gives you rather than enrolling in a trial where there's going to be a lot more follow-up, probably a lot more monitoring. Um, and this is something that we, you know, we struggle with. We know we need more of these trials, but how do you do it in a, in a cheap, easy way? Um, we threw out some you know, examples. Um, we we are we are big fans of um, the nudge principle, and we thought the idea that for a lot of things, um, you know, decisions which really we don't know which is best, which no patient would conceivably have some sort of um, um, predetermined um, reason to prefer one therapy to another. Maybe that's something that, that, that you have to opt out to not be in the trial. So if you go to your doctor with sinusitis and, you know, she's deciding between two different medications, two different antibiotics, both of which we know works. We just don't know which is the most effective. And you have no reason to prefer, you know, ciprofloxacin to azithromycin. Um, why not just have that person randomized um, unless they opt out and we could get lots of data quickly in that way. Do you think we're going to make some progress on these questions as we um, enter the so-called big data era? <laughs> One of the things that you seem skeptical about is uh, something we've talked about on the program before with Eric Topol, which is personalized medicine, the innovations that are coming in, in self-monitoring and other ways of assessing maybe effectiveness uh, you're not. You're a little more skeptical on that, right? Yeah, you know, I think that you know personalized medicine and using people's genetics to tailor therapy to them has enormous, enormous a promise. I think the issue, though, is that you still need to prove that therapies work. Um, and there's even more temptation when you talk about personalized medicine to say, hmm, we know how this drug works on this gene, and so that should fix people. Well, you know, you still don't know that until you've shown it. Um, and in a way, personalized medicine may make, you know, randomized controlled trials and evidence-based medicine even more important because we need to test each of these sort of personalized medicine interventions, you know, on a smaller and smaller group of people since 
our our therapies will generalize to smaller and smaller groups, if that makes sense. Yeah, sure. Uh, how do you deal with the criticism that that your skepticism about so many received therapies and techniques is a recipe for, quote, doing nothing? I'm sure one of the things you hear, and I think yeah. you're right about this, and I get it all the time in economics, so I'm skeptical about people who say the minimum wage doesn't uh, – doesn't reduce employment. And I'm skeptical, I have to confess, because I think I understand the mechanism uh, of how incentives work. Now, I might be Uh, wrong, but, you know, one of my responses then is that when people say, yeah, but look at the date, I want to say, well, then you better be, you've got to accept a different mechanism than mine. And that's going to have a lot of implications outside of just minimum wage policy. But anyway, when I say stuff like that, people say, oh, so we just do nothing? We've got, you know, we've got these... People who have terrible lives, they have terrible jobs, they have terrible opportunities in the labor force, and they're being – some people would say they're being exploited. And you just want to do nothing because you're not convinced it would help. Uh, doctors are even in a worse position. There's a patient in pain, maybe under risk of death, and you're saying, well, we just don't know if it's going to work. And I'm sure many practitioners – and you are a practitioner, so you have to deal with this daily – would say, oh, well, so what am I supposed to do? Just go, I'll wait till the RCT comes out that, that shows me what to do. I, I've got to do something now. Uh, I, that that is so well put. Um, you know, the I think the issue in medicine is that one, you need to consider who you're treating, and two, you just need to be very open with the patient. Um, so, if you're talking about a healthy person and you're talking about a screening intervention or preventative therapy. I would say, boy, you know, you need to be absolutely sure that's going to help them because you're taking a perfectly healthy person and you're basically turning them into a patient and potentially making them sick with your intervention. Um, When it's someone who's sick, who's in pain, um, well, then I think the bar is actually a little bit lower. Um, And you think about what you have to offer. You think about the likelihood that it'll work. And it may be that it's based on observational studies. It may be that it's based on surrogate endpoints. And I think what's important is that you have an open discussion with the patient and you say, look, this is what I have to offer you. Um, Maybe I have a well-proven, you know, older therapy and a less proven newer therapy. And these are the reasons it might work. These are the reasons that it might not. This is why maybe I'm a little bit uncomfortable about it. And you let the patient make the decision. Um, Just like doctors, um, you know, we as patients actually have, I think, very um, quite a breath in our values. And I have some patients who, you know, never want to take a medication unless it's been on the market for 10 years. I have other people who are, you know, knocking on my door the day after something is advertised saying, (laughs) I want that pill. Yeah. Yeah. And so you mentioned screening. Uh, We had Robert Aronowitz on the program talking about our urges to reduce our risk. And screening is very appealing, I think, to most of us. Catch it early. Uh, but you're, yeah, you, like, he appear to be uh, somewhat skeptical. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think we are we are brought up with the ounce of prevention is worth yeah. a pound of cure, right? Sure. Um, and there's nothing that makes more sense than, than screening. Um, you know, you find that breast cancer early, that prostate cancer early, it's got to help, right? Um, um, the problem is, you know, our, our tests are not perfect. Um, the diseases... Um, out there are, 
you know, even though we consider them common diseases, they're actually still rare. Um, and so even with a pretty good test, when you're looking for a rare disease, you're going to come up with a lot of false positives. Um, and those false positives cause anxiety among the, the patient, sort of, that's probably the, the least impactful. They also um, lead to procedures which probably don't need to be done and often treatment which doesn't need to be done. Um, you know, our, our recent data um, from the world of prostate cancer screening um, says that to save a life from prostate cancer, we actually need to treat about 30, 35 people for prostate cancer. Um, that's a lot of people being treated just to save one life. And, you know, if you're screening, you really need to take that into account. But if it's my life that you're saving, right. I think. Uh, so absolutely. there's a statistical is, issue there of what's a statistical life or, you know, a personal experience. I think the question is, right. but in that case, you know, I'm being facetious, not facetious. I'm being, um, I don't know what the right word is, but the real question is for me, it's one out of 36 with lots of unpleasant side effects until uh, I know otherwise, right? We don't know who the yeah. one is. It's, we're not saying it's too expensive to save the one. We're saying you're saying it's we don't know who the one is, and there's a that's a that's not that's not a great return. Absolutely, and and you're right. I mean, it's it's one in three for erectile dysfunction or one in three for for incontinence after that intervention. Um, so you're you're very likely to have the side effects. Um, you're less likely to have the benefit. Um, but that's where I think patient decisions, you know, decision making has to really enter into it. Um, and I feel like as as long as people are well informed and you're letting them know what the data is and you, there really is some chance of benefit, a reasonable chance of benefit that it's reasonable to suggest, well then, you know, people probably should have the freedom to make those decisions. I mean, one of the lessons of the book for me, and, and we'll talk about at the end, is that educating oneself as a, as a patient or as a potential patient is really important. And I think yes. most yes. most Americans, maybe most people generally, uh, we like deferring to some authority. We like not in other areas, but in medicine, it's like, look, doctor, you're the expert. I trust you. You carry yourself so well. You know, <laughs> you know one of the things that struck me about your book is – you, you know, you're really emphasizing, as I do, the importance of humility in my field, and you're emphasizing the importance of humility in your field. A lot of people don't. We don't want a humble doctor. I want an arrogant one. I want a. I want a doctor who can just say, "This is going to work. I've done this thousands of times. There's no side of blah blah blah." So it, there is a interesting culture there that you're encouraging a change in. Right. And, and I would say, you know, you 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 need to find the doctor that you need. Right. Um. Um. I certainly take care of people who are like that, um, who want me to be <laughs> to be the decider, right? Um, to be very clear about what I think is the right thing to do, and they will follow my advice. I have other people who, boy, want to have an open discussion, maybe an open argument about just about every decision. Um, and you need to find a doctor who who will do it the way you want to do it. Um, obviously, if you're someone who wants to argue and you have a doctor who wants to dictate, eh, you're probably not going to be a very good pair. Yeah, for sure. Um, many economists, not all, but many economists uh, really dislike the uh, the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration. Uh, hmm. goes, this goes back to work by Sam Peltzman, who argued that the FDA kills people. It's so careful in not – in making sure that drugs are safe, it rules out drugs and therapies that 
that could save lives. And uh, they raise the cost through their tests and their demands, which makes it harder to get any one drug to market. Uh, you argue for the other direction. You suggest that the FDA should be more uh, vigilant, not so much in safety, but in efficacy. So defend that position. Yeah. Um, you know, I, my my co-author, Vinay Prasad, um, he has said to me, and I really take this as truth, is that, you know, the people who work at the FDA, boy, I, I mean, those people are the most underappreciated um, group of people in the world um, and do an incredible job. Um, because on the one hand, they're being yelled at by people who are saying, you know, you are slowing down progress. You are holding up drugs that could save lives. You are responsible for, you know, mortality and morbidity. And on the other hand, there are people like us who are saying, wait, you know, you should make sure that this absolutely works before you approve it and let people be exposed to this. Um, so it's it's a difficult place um, to work and it's a difficult sort of sort of road to hoe. Um, I think um, um, what I would say is that you know, we want to make sure that the FDA um, is assuring that we have data that treatments work eventually. Um, there will be cases that a therapy looks really good in terms of its ability to affect surrogate endpoints, say. Um, and it's a drug that's really necessary because maybe the treatments for the disease we have out there aren't so good. Um, you know, it's probably completely reasonable that the FDA lets that drug out there and lets that start being uh, used. Um, but it really seems necessary that there should be studies ongoing at the time that the FDA approves that drug that will show us those real endpoints, um, you know, those clinical endpoints that matter. What often happens is that these drugs are approved based on surrogate endpoints, um, and then we never get that final data, and we're left with, you know, using therapies that might work, but we're not sure they do. And um, that, that, that seems like the wrong way to proceed. So let me make another analogy between medicine and economics I hadn't thought of until this conversation, which is, so in the case of, of the financial sector, we yeah. say, well, we don't want any banks to go broke because that can lead to chaos and disaster and people lose their money and they really don't like losing their money. So what we're going to do is we're going to insure banks' deposits so that you won't be at mm -hmm. that risk. Of course, we understand that changes the incentives facing banks, that they're going to then tend to want to be riskier because they'll still be able to attract investors and depositors because their money's insured. So then we have to then, of course, keep an eye on the banks and have rules about what they can invest in and what their safety right. is and whether they're approved or not by uh, a ratings agency. And of course, eventually, there's a unpleasant symbiotic relationship between the ratings agency and the, the banks, and they tend to work together, not as independently as they're supposed to, and banks start investing in things that are actually quite risky but look not so risky, and the ratings agencies go along because that's how they make their money, et cetera, et cetera. So in the medical area, we've got this lovely thing um, on the surface, which is third-party payment, either through health insurance or government uh, subsidies and programs of various kinds, Medicare, Medicaid. So people don't pay for their medicine. So my interest in finding out whether this thing works or not is very small. If it doesn't work, that's life. Negative side effects, well, I don't want that. So we have the FDA. What they mainly worry about is whether there's negative side effects. Unfortunately, that means there's a, a natural incentive, and I think economists underestimate this part of the FDA industry relationship, to keep the industry somewhat happy, right? Unfortunately, it's true that 
the high cost of FDA approval mean that drugs take a long time to get approved. And that means that a lot of drugs that might have been invested in aren't worth it anymore. But at the same time, it kind of creates a cartel for the pharmaceutical industry. So they don't have a lot of competition because there's this huge cost of approving a new drug. And they kind of like that. that. The first part, the, the delay, the cost, they don't like. The semi-cartel okay. monopoly thing, that's really great. So to me, the FDA, of course, the people involved in it day-to-day have a you know, a hard job. They're good-hearted people. But the influences they're under must be subtle and, and in a way that the I feel, feel that the Federal Reserve governors are under. They're coming into contact with people every day that are not necessarily what the American people want to be doing. I don't know. It seems right. like a, unpleasant. I think that's an amazing analogy. I mean, two two subtle things I would add to it also is that, you know, because of the cost of developing these drugs, um, you know, there, there's there's a very subtle incentive that, that if companies um, feel like they're going to be held to what they feel might be unreasonable standards, um, the incentive to spend this money and develop these drugs go down. Um, the other thing, which I thought as you were talking about the banks, you know, the, the physicians really rely on the FDA because the FDA is in a way our insurance company. Um, you know, the, the FDA takes the heat when a drug doesn't work or causes harm, not the physicians. Yeah. Um, so the FDA is getting, you know, both, both pressure um, and possibly influence um, in, in multiple directions. And you talk about that very thoughtfully in your book about, uh, in fact, let's turn to that. Uh, this isn't the FDA per se, but it's about these subtle influences that we all operate under. And just to close, right. the, close the economics financial thing for the moment, I think you know, the real key here is that our medical system, the way it is structured through government programs and tax deductibility of, of healthcare payments mostly – it just changes the feedback loops that would normally be there, uh, and it does that in the between patients and doctors, and it does that in the, in the investment world also. And I'm, I'm, I'll leave it at that. Yes, but absolutely, talk about thought leaders and what you call super specialists, because I thought that was extremely interesting about the um, those incentives that face those folks. Yeah, um, I I think about this in a way that you know all, when we talk about the amount of medicine that can be wrong, you know. Those are to some extent, you know, made up numbers and they certainly don't affect any one doctor. Um, um, you know, you you may be seeing, I don't know, a, you know, a generalist who's practicing from a very clear evidence base because the diseases that that doctor takes care of are common things which are um, which are treated by, you know, which have been studied very well. Um, when you start to get sick and see a more and more specialized physicians, maybe for the problem you have, um, the therapies that they recommend may be um, less well studied, and that's because they affect fewer people, um, and and because you're so in need that you're probably more willing to accept um, um, therapies that are not as well studied. The other thing is that um, very often those specialists in, in medicine today, and it's one of the reasons why, you know, American medicine is terrific, that we have people who study such, you know, minute areas of medicine that they begin to just understand everything that's known about that. And it makes them more willing, I think, to adopt 
therapies based on what they know because they're experts and they feel like it's foolproof. Um, adding to that, those people are often most involved in the studies. They're most involved with the companies that are developing drugs and devices. Um, and so those are people who, you know, are probably the people you want to see with some of the problems, but maybe ones whose therapies might be most prone to reversal. Talk about their um, roles, consultants, and um, influencers. Yeah. So, um, so it's interesting. So, you know, many of those people, it's, it's hard to generalize on this. Um, of course, um, they're all fine people that would never, ever have any psychological <laughs> right. influence. Okay, put that aside. Go ahead. Right. So clearly to become an expert in your field in today's world where so much of um, our drug and therapy trials are funded by industry um, because the NIH can't fund anything, can't fund everything, and they're certainly not going to be developing every new drug. Um, very often these super specialists have um, some sort of affiliation with industry. Um, they may be consultants on trials. They may actually be running the trials that are funded by drug companies, um, or, you know, they may believe strongly in a new medication that works and end up being um, a spokesperson for these medications, um, either paid or not. Um, and you can imagine you're hearing all those possibilities that probably gets harder and harder to be completely unbiased in your recommendations and your thoughts about these um, if you begin to have a financial stake in the medications. So say, just hypothetically, somebody who maybe worked for Goldman Sachs and goes and works for the government knowing they're going to go back to Goldman Sachs, I'm sure it doesn't have any effect because they only care about the public interest. Absolutely, and that's a completely hypothetical example. Yeah. Well, there's unfortunately there's more than one, so we're not talking about any one person. <laughs> so it's not really that damaging. I can use Citibank too if we need to. Um, uh, anyway, uh, let's uh, let's move on. Now, one of the 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 book is full of an of interesting analysis of of the current state of of this problem of medical reversal. But toward the end of the book, you you speculate about how we might create a different system of medical education uh, that would change things and medical research, the way it's structured. Uh, sketch out just a little of that. We don't have time for the full thing. Uh, I encourage people to read the book. But uh, what are the what are the, what's the biggest changes you would make to medical education if you were a czar? And um, what are the odds anybody's going to listen? <laughs> um, about that last there question. are a lot. There are a lot of things standing in the way of this. Um, but you know, uh, our idea, um, and it's an idea which. Uh, uh, Dr. Prasad, my co-author, actually published first, um, but it, you know it's certainly been in been in in the thought for a long time. Um, is that because we think so much reversal is based on we think something should work, and so we're going to adopt it before we know that it actually does work. Um, and one of the reasons that is is because that's how medical education is structured. Um, we learn the biochemistry, the physiology, the pathophysiology as the very first things in medical school. Um, and over the first two years, we kind of get convinced that everything works mechanistically the way we think it does. And it's only in the later years that when we're introduced to patients and actually making patient care decisions that the more of the sort of empiricism comes into play here. And so our idea is that, you know, could we flip that around? Um, could, could doctors be trained in really evidence-based medicine at the beginning? Um, and, 
you know, be presented with, with patients and cases um, and then be asked to research, you know, what is the best treatment here? Why is that the best treatment? What's the evidence base behind that? Um, and then certainly it's crucial that doctors understand um, pathophysiology. Um, it's crucial not only for taking care of patients, but it's crucial for moving the field forward because you can't come up with good research questions without that knowledge. But maybe that should come later. Um, and so you'd be seeing that sort of science through the window of what you've already learned about taking care of patients. Um, Changing medical education is difficult. We've been teaching medicine, you know, with some tweaks pretty similar to the way we were doing it 100 years ago. Um, but I think there are more and more people who are who are realizing the flaws in what we do that, you know, I'm hopeful there'll be changes. And one of the issues we've talked a lot about lately here at Econ Talk is I would call evidence-based economics, which, you know, who could be, who could be against it? Uh, the, the challenge, of course, is good evidence and bad evidence. That's always yeah. always the problem. And I, you know, I think about the analogy, the analog of of flipping the practice in economic education. Uh, I'm not sure I want people. Uh, you should look at data and you should look at how the world works. The, the question is, how do you do that in a way that doesn't lead to overconfidence in other in other problems? And it's very hard. The data and people say, "Well, let the data speak for themselves." But the data often don't speak for themselves. Well, I'd say they never do. You really have to have some kind of theory in the background. Do you agree with that? Yes, I do. I do, um, and it's one of it's been one of the most interesting things that I've experienced. You know, talking about this book and the research that went into the book is that there are some things that you know I've thought a lot about the article and I've you know, been trained for 20 years in how to think about these articles, um, that I really, truly think it says one thing, and someone who I'm talking to really, truly thinks it says something different. Um, and when we get down to it and we discuss it, it, you know, it's often easy to figure out why we're looking at it from a different viewpoint. Um, but these are sort of honest arguments, and usually I think both of us end up being right. Um, and so although evidence-based medicine and probably evidence-based ec economics is the, is the way to go, you still have to have people thinking about this beyond the evidence and agreeing about what the evidence means. Yeah, for sure. Uh, how has the book and the research that you've done to, to write it, how has it affected your clclinical practice? Does it, does it weigh on you day-to-day? Uh, -day? <laughs> Do you feel it? Is it different than it was two years ago, five years ago when you're with a patient and dealing with a, with a problem? I think it has. I mean, I, as you can imagine talking to me, you know, I'm, I wouldn't say I'm a nihilist, but I'm a bit of a, a skeptic and I'm, I'm generally a less is more type practitioner. Um, and when I, what I think it's done is it's, it's made me on the one hand, very aware of that. Um, and, um, so I think hard about whether the treatments I'm recommending um, are truly beneficial to the patient. Interestingly, in the other direction, it's made me realize what my bias is very clearly. Um, and, and it's made me careful about um, applying that bias to my patients who may have a very different bias. So I, I, you know, admit to them freely, listen, this is my value system. This is how I recommend things. And, um, I need to hear what yours are so I can change my thinking in a way to meet what you want. And it's, it's been educational in a way that I, I think I would not have, have expected before, before beginning this effort. Yeah. I assumed it's uh, created some mindfulness maybe about your, about yourself that maybe wasn't, wasn't there before. It's, Really, really interesting. Yeah. 
When I'm a big fan of empowering consumers and patients, and uh, I'm not a big fan of the nanny state um, and lots of other, especially regulation that's supposed to help people that actually is doesn't or even worse was designed to help somebody else that, but was right. packaged as a way of helping consumers twisted um, through some political process. But when I talk about that, especially in medical areas, people say, well, people just aren't smart enough to make their own decisions. They need doctors mm-hmm. to tell them what to do. And I'm curious, I'd like to hear your, let's close with this, your advice. You, you write about it quite eloquently in the in the book, but uh, for those who aren't don't have the book yet, what should we do as patients um, given the, the reality that the world and the body is a complicated place? How should this affect this knowledge of medical reversal, how do we deal with it um, in the in the in the moment when we've got challenges, and and how can we educate patients to to be better at dealing with that? Yeah, so I mean that uh, that is a struggle. Um, you know, the one big struggle, and what I really encourage people to do is to just feel comfortable asking questions when you see your doctor. Um, I take care of. Lots of people who I know from outside my office, and I can't tell you how many people who are incredibly smart, brave people who never shy away from anything in the rest of their lives come into the office and all of a sudden, you know, kind of clam up and don't ask the questions they should be asking. Um, and I think that's a little bit that they feel like, ah, this is medicine. I don't know anything about this. There's a little bit of that, you know, sort of power differential of someone sitting on one side of the table in a white coat and someone on the other side, just, you know, in their street clothes. Or a paper gown. Um, <laughs> <laughs> right. Or a paper gown, uh, which is torn in the back, certainly. Yeah. Um, and so, so it's important to, to, to arm yourself with the, with the, with the real questions. And those real questions are to begin with are not, you know, what are the side effects of this medication? Will my insurance pay for this medication? It's does this medication work? How do you know it works? How likely is it to benefit me if you give it to me? What are the other options to the, to the care plan that you're outlining here. Um, and then maybe even ask the doctor to, you know, argue the other side of the coin for a second so you can sort of figure out what, what you need to do. Um, we as doctors, I mean, we're certainly trained um, to be open to these discussions. This, this entire generation of doctors practicing now has been brought up with the idea that patient autonomy is key and the paternalism of the past you know, is gone. Um, but, you know, we don't always practice what we learn. Um, and I, I find that when we're really taught to practice what we've learned, it's when we don't know what to do. So, um, you know, whenever there's something like we talked about prostate cancer screening or mammograms between 40 and 50, you know, the guidelines are, well, well, we should definitely discuss this with your patient (laughs) because those are the places that we really don't know what to recommend. Um, so we put it on the patient to make the impossible decision. But isn't the challenge in that situation sometimes that you're visiting uh, the wielder of a hammer and you've got a nail and or you don't have the nail and they're, they're going to use the hammer. You know, they're going to say, oh, you need this procedure. I think one of the biggest challenges we face, and I think, I don't, again, I don't think, as you point out in the book, it's not malicious. It's not, it's not sinister. But so often specialists, they've come to believe their therapy or surgery works when in fact, maybe it doesn't work so well. And in that situation, I think it's a very difficult challenge for the patient. Mm, yes. Uh, I mean, I, I'm, I'm a general internist. I'm a generalist. And I, I think that's why 
those people are key to help you find the right person. Um, because it is true, um, you know, the specialists who, boy, we rely on every day, um, really do look at things through, you know, the glasses of a hepatologist or, um, you know, or a cardiologist. And that's what they think about, um, which is really necessary if you need those people, but maybe not for everything. Um, the other problem is that, you know, as a patient, you can always find someone who will look at your health care in the way that you do. Um, so if you want something done and the first two doctors you see say it's not the right thing to do, you can always find someone who will. Um, so you need to find a doctor you trust who you think really has your best interest at heart um, and is going to steer you to the right people when they can't care for you, which is which is honestly frequently. My guest today has been Adam Seafew. His name is spelled with a C as in Charlie at the beginning. I know many of you are listening in your car or uh, commuting in some way and don't have access necessarily to the Internet. You might want to Google uh, Dr. Seafew, but it's C-I-F-U is how you spell his last name. His book is Ending Medical Reversal. Adam, thanks for being part of EconTalk. Thank you very much for having me. It's been really wonderful. This is EconTalk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more EconTalk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for EconTalk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.